Welcome to LilyPod episode 24, Wisdom from Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife for Mid-Singles. Jeff and Kathy Teichert bringing you another episode of LilyPod, which is a production of Love in Later Years. We are certified life coaches and members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our messages are directed toward mid-singles and later married couples. We also welcome all who enjoy personal growth and enriching relationships. Welcome, LilyPod listeners, and uh, we have a great exciting program today. We are honored to have a special guest. Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife uh, is someone whose work I have followed for a long time uh, and really spoke to me, especially when I first started hearing uh, what she had to say. It was like a whole new revelation. Uh, Jennifer got her PhD at Boston College, and maybe if you could give us uh, something on your dissertation. Sure. Um, I wrote my dissertation on LDS women um, and the and basically how much sexual agency they had in the context of marriage. And that is to say, like a sense of belonging to their own sexuality and their desires and feeling kind of a sense of freedom and happiness in their marriage. So that's what I wrote on. And I looked at women who had grown up in the church and had, were now married and just learned about their pre and post marital experiences. So that was the subject and it was very interesting work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, awesome. Also, Jennifer is a sex therapist and coach. Um, she lives and works out of Chicago, but does a lot of remote uh, sessions with people by Zoom. She's also an educator. Uh, she has a great podcast, which I listen to. Uh, this show, in fact, will appear on her podcast. She has a free Facebook group with a lot of interesting people and ideas and uh, a lot of YouTube videos. And then she sponsors a, a lot of online courses, uh, helping couples with their sexuality and, and so forth. Uh, I'd like to just digress for a second too and let our audience know, we booked this interview with Jennifer a few months ago, but then we just happened to run into her one day in Utah, a place we had no idea she would be at a, <laughs> violin or stringed uh, instrument camp for where, where uh, my stepson and her daughter were both attending. So that mm-hmm. was fun to run into her yeah. and meet, meet in person for the first time. Well, and that's my music world. And we know you through love in later years and right. we appreciate you following, but that was really fun to have you in my music world. I just, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's great. Did your daughter have a good time? Yeah, she did. She had a really good time. She did my son. Yeah, it was yeah. really a great event. Yeah, for sure. And and Jennifer's daughter is an accomplished musician for her age. So uh, fun to yeah. fun to run into her in our Suzuki violin world. Yeah. So Jennifer, to just start out, I, I mean, we've heard you answer this question before, mm-hmm. but uh, we just need to get it out of the way up front or mm-hmm. we'll hear about it. Where is the line mm-hmm. for singles? Yeah, I'm impressed you've heard me answer that because it's probably one I avoid. 
in that, in that, you know, it's um, it's not it's an integrity-based question more than an obedience-framed question, I think, especially as you are in adulthood and single. And, you know, we want the obedience framing. What does JFF think the line is? Okay, as opposed to, you know, that is we want easy answers for these things. I think when you're young and for the Strength of Youth Manual has the context of, of, people who are not yet adults thinking about how to stay uh, safe around sexuality. I think when you're an adult, you've been married and now are dating, I think that there's not an easy answer, but there still is an answer. And that is, you know, what is it that is appropriate to the relationship, to how old you are, to what is loving, to what is respectful, what is self-respecting, what is respectful of the other person? And that you honestly believe is right. You don't ever want to do something that's undermining of your spirituality, of your sense of uh, well-being, or undermining of another person. And sorting out what that is for who you are, for what you believe, for who your spouse or for who your dating partner is, and what he or she believes. You know, being respectful and navigating that is not easy. Um, But I think, especially as you move out of adolescence and into full adulthood, more and more that that's something you must take up with your own honest self um, reflection and judgment. And so I think um, we often want someone to tell us the answer, but I think we have to tease out what really is true and right for us. That's an awesome answer. Thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah, I mean, it it sounds in a way like you're saying don't do it on some fear-based thing. It's been imposed on me by someone, but honestly think, consider, pray about it and come to your yeah. own. Like we're our own conclusion. authority on this. Yes, exactly. To be full adults and to be fully capable of intimacy, you can't put the locus of control outside of yourself. And we're very tempted to do that because it gets us off the hook for morality and our responsibility and our impact. We want someone else to tell us often, or we rebel against that, but both of those are tethered to an external authority, not to a deepening internal reference point that's honest, that's moral. Uh, so a lot of times people think I mean like, oh, do whatever you want as long as you think it's okay. It's, it's more than that. It's, it's really from an honest self-reference in your relationship with God reference. It's truthful and it's something that you can um, sustain within yourself. So it's a higher standard than just what you feel like doing in any given moment, but it's moving that locus of control within you. And that's a part of psychological adulthood and the capacity for an intimate relationship. That's awesome. Yeah, so it has a very deep purpose uh, to, to mature in that, in that part of our selves. Following up, um, we want to thank you for appearing on this program, and uh, you know that our organization is called Love in Later Years, or sometimes the acronym is used, Lily. And that's why we called this podcast Lily Pod. Yeah, it's cute. I like it. Right. So uh, our audience is principally mid-singles, and having having said that... And later married uh, couples, too. Right, later married couples also. How would you suggest a Latter-day Saint mid-single adult adjust to celibacy after a lengthy marriage? 
Mm -hmm. Well, again, it has to be choice-based and integrity-based. People can do hard things. Humans do hard things all the time. To do them because somebody else told you to do them will drive you crazy and keep Mm -hmm. you immature. Doing them because you believe it's the right thing. Because of your hard choices, you think it's the best path. Uh, because you claim it as something you desire in your life has a very different impact on you psychologically. And I very much saw this in my dissertation research, like women who chose the law of chastity because it fit with what they believed was good for them. It was what they wanted, what they chose. They had no trouble with sexuality. They didn't shame sexuality, even though they claimed a more conservative path in a behavioral sense. And so they didn't, they didn't have any trouble making that adaptation into marriage. People that were like, well, I've been told I shouldn't, uh, you know, my boy, no, the guy won't accept me down the road. If I do this with my boyfriend now, you know, God will be ashamed of me. My bishop, that was more external locus of control. Even if the behavior was the same, the impact on them was very different and much more constrictive. That makes sense. I think Laura Brotherson calls that the good girl syndrome. Yeah, right. And it's not about the behavior itself, because in fact, the women in my dissertation who chose the law of chastity, behaviorally speaking, actually were more conservative in their choices than women who felt more shame and guilt around it. But the good girl is I'm trying to be a good girl for somebody outside of me. Right. I don't know how Laura Brotherson talks about it, but but uh, that is the difficulty. You, again, it's moving from an external locus, which is what we do as young people into a deeper internal reference, the stronger and the more spiritually progressed we become. Right. Yeah. You know, we actually, on a side note, we have referenced you and Laura Brotherson in our book, Intentional Courtship, which will be coming out just a few ah, minutes. A couple of big block quotes from you in there. Oh, great. Fun. <laughs> so uh, how, how do you, Jennifer, how do you understand the role of physical affection in dating, particularly for full adults and preparing for an eventual marriage? So how do I understand like its role in courtship and then, and and then how it, so preparing for the marriage? Yes. Yeah. Well, I think that you've probably heard me say this before, but I do think that physicality and sensuality and attraction are very important in a relationship that wants to be an intimate relationship. And if you want to get married more to have a place in society, to feel like you're a grown up um, because you want to fulfill roles, well, then maybe attraction isn't so important. Although I don't know many people that have pulled that off (laughs) because when there's no attraction in a marriage or one is lacking attraction, it really wreaks havoc on the marriage. But fundamentally, if you're, you want a choice-based marriage, attraction is sort of, is fundamental to it. The desire for the other person. And I don't mean just the desire to be sexual, but you really want them. You're attracted to them. You want to be close to them is very, very important. Now, if that's all you have, and you have no respect for them or, you know, it will fall apart. So it can't be the only criterion, but it's a foundational criterion and not one that should be um, put in the back seat. Like I used to think, oh, that must mean I'm superficial that I want to marry the person I'm super attracted to. I don't think so. I think that's, 
that's very much um, a part of a solid marriage. So when you're dating, um, a lot of people think, well, how can you really know if you're compatible unless you live together beforehand or something? I don't think that's true for a few reasons. One is that the context of marriage is its own context. And often somebody you were very attracted to premaritally, it could change once you get married for factors unrelated to the person's actual attractiveness, meaning more about your desire or fear of exposure, more resentments that start might, might start happening in the marriage. The way you are relating to each other as married people can all be factors in attraction and desire in marriage. But, um, but this issue of do we both desire each other? Do we want to be close to each other? I just think that's a, an important beginning place and doesn't require full engagement to know. Sure. You know, I was talking to somebody recently who was saying like, even though, you know, they're both physically attractive people, one of them just was always could feel like I can't, I don't feel this person's desire for me. And that's really critical to not leap over that and get married anyway. Do you yeah. think it's something that can grow during courtship or do you think it always is there from the start? Well, I don't know, but there's research that suggests it's there from the start or it isn't there. Um, I, I just know the research from John Gottman talking about it uh, when I listened to him in a presentation once. So I don't know this research well, but basically that there's certain people, you could have a room full of attractive people and there could be like just one or two that you kind of would feel this like real attraction to it might even have a biological basis in terms of the people tend to be attracted people that have a different kind of immune system than them so they are more likely to produce resilient kids from a biological perspective i don't know that research well but i think there are certainly people that you will feel a kind of visceral attraction to and others less so i think that there's a certain amount of unattraction that's a part of every good marriage okay like you're not always feeling attracted all the time and it's not just coming from the outside part of attraction is your ability to choose another person and value another person which is more based in your strength and your capacity to love so desire and love have choice in them for sure so i'm not saying it's just happening or it's not but saying, I really feel no attraction, but I'm going to try to feel it later once we get married, not a good move so to make. That happens before marriage. Yeah, you don't want to, exactly. You want to know that you really did feel that on some level in the beginning and to not force it. But that doesn't mean that the feelings of attraction will stick around no matter what, because there's, there's a lot of um, decisions that you make around that that impact it. Okay. And, and Jennifer, I've heard you say that... Uh, sometimes people get married to someone they're explicitly not attracted to because they're afraid of sexuality. Yeah, exactly. I've heard you say that that's a very indecent thing to do to someone. Yeah, right. Maybe you could talk about that for just a second. Yeah, well, I mean, sometimes people do this somewhat unwittingly. Sometimes they do it because they've been told to devalue attraction, like the really good people aren't don't care about sex. Um, and a lot of times people do it because they're afraid of sexuality. The thing that's indecent in it to me is, is the not letting the other person fully know mm. and capturing them into a life with you while you don't really feel attracted enough to them and you don't really fully choose them. So you're kind of 
keeping them from being able to make a full choice. That's the part that's indecent. If both people are like, hey, I'm not into sex either, then that's fine. Yeah, I you know, if you're somebody who, that, but go for it. Yeah, <laughs> right. But if you identify as asexual or something, you certainly would want to let your future spouse know that you think of yourself that way, that they really have a real choice. And if they're like, hey, so am I. <laughs> I mean, who am I to say not to do that? Because I think that would actually probably work well if it's true. I appreciate how you defined that because I feel the same way about any lie coming into marriage. Absolutely. Or any kind of misperception. Right. Exactly. I mean, there may be plenty of things you don't fully know about your spouse, but it's another thing to withhold information that you know they would want to know. Mm -hmm. Right. So there's, there's a question that's kind of dear to our hearts. I'll let Kathy uh, ask it, but at love and later years, you know, like I said, we, we minister to mid singles uh, and later married couples. Well, in a mass, um, a vast majority of them have experienced emotional pain around a sexual relationship during their marriages, mm. especially if they're divorced. And well, of course, they'd be divorced. Um, but um, these experiences range from acute feelings of rejection, um, mm-hmm. or being objectified to resentment or over pornography or affairs. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, also, it can be childhood trauma. Uh, that interfered with one partner's ability to freely engage. And um, there's a there's a very real belief for many divorcees that problems in the bedroom lead to divorce. Um, so the question is, what would you recommend to a divorced person who would like to date and remarry, but has unsettled emotions about sex in a former marriage and has pretty severe anxiety or even dread about the physical intimacy component of an eventual future marriage? Mm-hmm. Um, my advice might be three things, see if I can remember all three, but one thing is that um, I would, okay, so idea number one is that sexuality is charged or challenging because it's so close to home. So I think sexuality is so core to our sense of self and so vulnerable to use that language that when we feel rejected there or feel critiqued or feel betrayed, it's high impact um, because it's so close to the bone. Um, The thing I would recommend around it is to try and sort out, okay, let me say one more thing. The one thing I would want to tease apart, though, is the issue is not sexuality. The issue is how one was related to or related through sexuality. So the reason why that matters is a lot of us conflate sexuality as sex is the thing that drives you down to hell. Sex is the thing that made my spouse untrustworthy. It's not the sex that made the spouse untrustworthy, for example. It's that the spouse hadn't yet grown to be someone trustworthy and related to their sexuality from their immaturity and therefore did higher damage because sex is so vulnerable. Does that make sense? So it's the character of the person, not the sex. Now, that's not to deny the context is a painful one or a challenging one, but to tease apart who was my spouse, who was I, you know, a lot of times we're tempted to kind of put everything on the spouse that we divorce, but who was I in that dynamic? How was I a part of our problems? The value in that is that's the part you have control over. Right. You, you want to see clearly, but you also want to see what role was I playing in that unhappiness. And um, 
not that you caused the other person's behavior or anything like that, but how did I get inducted into it? How was I blind to it? How was I part of my spouse's resentment? Where do I need to grow myself up in my development and in my relationship to myself and others and in my relationship to my sexuality? So you want to see it as more character-based than sexuality-based, even though sex is the expression of it. And you want to look at what do I have control over in this? Because the people that are happy in marriage have a strong sense of personal efficacy and their ability to control their lives. If you think you're turning your life and your sexuality over to someone else, you're going to go nuts. (laughs) This is the clinical term for it. (laughs) I just mean, you know, we get really limbic when we don't feel we're in control. So for example, like the day before I got married, I was, I was somebody who dated my husband for three years. I had a lot of anxieties about getting married because I'd grown up learning. Once you get married, you hand it all over. You take on his name, which I didn't. (laughs) Oh, well, not fully. Uh, You, you know, you kind of turn your life over to a man And I wanted to be married, but I wanted to still be in control of my life. And I married the right kind of person for that because John really affords me my freedom for sure, meaning we do for each other. But still the day before I was scared that I was going to fold into someone else's life, lose, lose my autonomy. So the day before I got married, I remember just sitting there thinking like, I'm really choosing John tomorrow. And I feel good about that choice. But if at any point he becomes unworthy of that choice, unworthy of that commitment, I reserve the right to undo it. Now, some people would say, well, that means you don't value marriage or you don't value commitment. No, I value that I continued to be a chooser and that I was always going to be a chooser and I was never turning that over. And in sexuality, that's essential as well. I'm not turning my sexuality over to someone. I'm sharing it. I'm the actor, I'm the chooser, I'm the one who participates and I'm not gonna do the same old pattern as the former marriage that was, because it's not good for me or anyone else. I'm not gonna do that. I'm not gonna be in the same role I was in. What do I need to do differently to create, forge a healthier relationship to myself, my sexuality and a future spouse? Right. Mm. Well, you know, I've actually heard before that if, if you're, fearful of marriage commitment that one way to go into it more confidently and uh with more uh, empowerment is to be willing to let that relationship go if it becomes unhealthy absolutely of course we don't get married to get divorced no one does no one does yeah have that as an option rather than feeling like all your choices are stripped from you it makes sense what you're saying that's right and it sounds like what you're recommending is uh, that uh, they tease apart the experience and figure out what their part was. And that's something we definitely encourage too. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this case, it's, it's a character building opportunity, mm-hmm. maybe to grow exactly. the trauma. That's right. Right. If we're just fixated on this was traumatic and I'm the victim of it we are complicit, even if unwittingly, in repeating it because we haven't found our agency within it. And people are always going to do things we don't like. People hurt each other. Those things are all true. But we don't ever want to use that fact to lose track of our agency 
and our ability to be choosers in the face of difficult behavior. Um, and then just to your point around marriage, I really see marriage more as you're making a commitment to yourself and God about the kind of person you're going to be vis-a-vis -vis the other person. You're not making a commitment to the other person. Now, again, that made people be like, what? That's not, yeah. No, I'm not saying I'll be with you no matter what you do. I'm saying I'm making a commitment about the kind of person I will be, that I will bring integrity here, that I will bring strength and goodness here and share a life with you. That's my commitment. So if doing what is right means leaving, I will leave. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's it's romantic in some ways to say oh, we divorce is not an option. We slam the door on that. But, mm -hmm. you know, I think we all have a threshold. Oh, yeah, we, we all should out through getting divorced. Yeah. If you ever respect a partnership over yourself, you're toast. Yeah, somebody pulls out a baseball bat, I'm out the door, you know? Yeah, and, sure. And obviously exactly. there, there are lesser offenses that could. Right. Result in or, that too, or over God too, like you said. Exactly. Because he always wants what's best for his children and he doesn't want us abused or. No, uh, there's no, and there's no virtue in it. Letting yourself be beaten. Well, I won't do it that way. I was going to say the baseball bat thing is too graphic. So I don't mean it like that. If you letting yourself be taken advantage of abused is bad for you, but it's also bad for the abusive one. Yeah. So, so a qu uh, kind of a follow-up question about that. It sounds like uh, from what, what I gathered from what you just said that for one, you think people that have had, you know, sexual trauma or felt objectified or whatever in their former marriage need to get clear on their level of maturity and their partner's level of maturity to have a, a more clear understanding of what happened and that that's one thing that will help. And then the other thing is to realize that you're choosing and that you have agency in, in how you are in a future sexual mm -hmm. relationship. Does that, mm -hmm. yes. Understanding what you're saying? Yes, I think, I think that captures it. So you learn from it. You divorce, you divorce sexuality from character, not divorce, but you tease them apart because we can put them all together. You, um, you, you understand what was it that happened. Maybe a good therapist or coach or a friend can help you to tease some of that out. I want to see clearly. And part of that is seeing myself in it. And then how can I be a chooser in a healthier way? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And sometimes we want relief from what happened by saying it was 100% the other person, but we actually debilitate ourselves if we do that inaccurately. And I love the way you term that, be a chooser. Mm -hmm. Very empowering. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You said there were three things, so I'm not sure. Oh, great. Did I miss one? Um, <laughs> let me think. It's always, I always have it come into my head that I've got to remember them. Um, I think it's the divorcing those two, it's yeah. uh, teasing it out for the meaning and being a chooser. I think I got all three. Okay. You're messing me up, Jeff. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. All right. Uh, one, one thing that Kathy and I have talked about a lot, and it, it was nothing we would have expected uh, when we became single again in our middle years, but we observed uh, entering the world of dating again at middle-aged was how soon the topic of sex comes up in conversation, particularly- I'm sure previously married people. Yeah. Uh, I mean, on the first or second date, most of the time. I'm sure. So uh, many mid singles, it seems like don't want to waste their time with someone, you know, that only wants sex once a month. Well, 
you know, others have fears about a potential partner's aberrant desires. Or, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Uh, and I was surprised, frankly, by the number of women I dated who complained about their former husband not ever wanting sex. I mean, you, mm-hmm. you always think of that the other way, but I, mm-hmm. I heard that a lot. Absolutely. Um, and, and it contributed to the divorce. In right. So how would you recommend a dating couple initiate a conversation about sex and what would a healthy conversation about sex look like for two middle-aged adults who are sexually experienced? It's, it's a good question. Um, and it's a hard question because it's a complex topic in the sense of what was the actual meaning of what happened? Uh, why did it go sideways? One risk is in seeing desire as somehow like personality trait. Are you a low desire person? Are you a high desire person? Are you good? The thing is, is that it doesn't really work that way. I know lots of people who were low desire in one context and high desire in another context because it's probably beyond the scope of, of this answer, but because so much of the issues of one's relationship to oneself get played out in desire dynamics. So if you get married and you're expecting your husband, if you're a woman, to be the high desire one, because that's what you learned all guys are, and he's not, well, guess what? Guess who becomes high desire pretty quickly? The woman. (laughs) Because she's like, why don't you want me? You're supposed to be the one, I'm supposed to be the low desire one. You know, I'm supposed to be the one who's controlling this. And because I feel rejected, now I really, really want it. What often happens is let's say that then he becomes higher desire, then her desire will often drop down because, well, now I know you want me and I feel secure in that, but I don't know that I necessarily want to be open and knowable to you. So these dynamics are more about validation often than they are about comfort with intimacy. I know a lot of high desire people, male or female, who actually, when it comes to creating something more intimate, their anxiety then shows up around sexuality and their own legitimacy. So it's hard if you approach it like, okay, so so thinking of it as something static is a little bit risky because it's not. That said, how comfortable one is with sexuality matters. Is this somebody that I could talk to comfortably about sexuality? Can they have the conversation in not a way that they dare say the words, but they've been somewhat self-reflective about who they are relative to sex, that you can see they know something about their own mind and their own vulnerabilities. That's what I'd be interested in because if you don't know your own mind, you're dangerous. Uh, If you don't know where your vulnerabilities are, you're not safe to be with. So I'm just muting because there's this train going by. I don't know if you can hear that or not. Sorry, you now have something to edit out. Oh, you're good. (laughs) Okay, sorry. But I think that, so the one thing I would also say about that is somebody that's high desire is not necessarily any more comfortable with their sexuality than a low desire person. You know, premature ejaculation, ED, these are functions of anxiety, even if you're high desire. So you may have as many, the one thing that sort of surprised me in the work I've done is how much men are carrying anxiety about sexuality at least as much as women, women can own it more because it's okay to have anxiety about sex if you're female and still be our cultural ideal of a female. But if you're a man, you're supposed to be, you know, have lots of bravado and be super cool and, and, and be comfortable with everything. And so a lot of times it gets masked for men, either low desire men who don't talk about it, 
or high desire men who use their high desire as a form of confidence when in fact they're leaning heavily on their spouse to make their sexuality legitimate and okay for them. And when their spouse doesn't, it expresses itself in, you know, sexual dysfunction often. So if it were me, I'm just imagining if I were back in that position, heaven forbid, um, (laughs) uh, not easy, I'm sure. But I think I would just be asking about, you know, what's your understanding of what went wrong? What do you see or understand about yourself in it? What do you see or understand about your spouse in it? What do you imagine is what you want in a marriage? What do you think will be challenging for you in creating it? I mean, I just would want to know that they have some self-awareness and some thoughtfulness and some self-honesty around it. If it's like, oh, my spouse was terrible and blah, 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 blah. I'd be like, yikes, I don't think I want (laughs) because there's not enough. It's too much in a, it had nothing to do with me frame. And that makes them ripe to not take responsibility for themselves in the next in the next context. That makes total sense. Yeah, we, we both love that answer. I, I, I think um, one thing that we observe dating and we, we've discussed this previously is the other person is getting to the point where they're ready to make another relationship when they can understand their role in the previous divorce or whatever. And, Absolutely. and uh, I mean, that was true of me too. When I was just bitter at my former wife and you know everything was her fault, uh, that would have been a bad place to make a relationship from. Once I absolutely, you know, started to fill my own role in it. Yes. Even though it wasn't all my fault or anything. No, no, no. That's right. It's not all in certain ways, and yep. And uh, and, and and the marriage exposed your vulnerabilities. It doesn't mean you deserved what happened, but it it at right. least makes possible for you to see where am I vulnerable, where am I weak, and what do I need. If you allow life to teach you and marriage to teach you, you can really get stronger. If you just resent it all, you throw those possibilities away. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I think that's true in and out of the bedroom. Yes, absolutely. Um, if a divorced person recognizes that problems were a major factor in the divorce, and you know, we were kind of getting into this a minute ago, but oftentimes you know, there's a feeling that it was the other person's fault. Um, some members of our audience may be stuck in that frame of mind, you know, it was the other person's fault. And, you know, I would have been fine if it hadn't been for mm-hmm. what they did. What would you say to those people? Well, you're making yourself very, very vulnerable. <laughs> I mean, who doesn't want on some level, the idea that everything that bad that happens to them is everybody else's fault. I mean, there's a way of it's a super entitled position that life should take care of me. And if it doesn't, I've been wronged, but it's a very dangerous way of living because you're unwittingly giving all your control over to everyone else. The locus of control is outside of you. It will make you anxious and depressed and you won't learn from life in order to have a better roadmap. You want a good map of what is reality to keep yourself from falling into, you know, potholes or hitting landmines. If you don't, the more inaccurate your map, even if it feeds your narcissism or your entitlement or your sense that everybody should love me because I'm so lovable, that's a fantasy. And if you have a map based on fantasy, you're super vulnerable. So I, 
it, it hurts to see your role in anything. And that doesn't mean you're responsible for all of it, but you, even if it's just being naive to who someone is, that is a role, that is a blind spot. If you don't get a hold of it, um, well, it hurts to see it. Regret hurts, but learn from regret and go forward differently. And now you've used that regret, you've used it to create something stronger in you and you've moved forward in a better way. And that's a small amount of pain to actually be safer going forward. So it's well worth it. I just uh, wanted to mention that we believe that we create our own lives and that we attract mm. experiences. And of course we don't control what other people do, but we do mm -hmm. attract those experiences that we have mm -hmm. and that yeah. we learn from. And um, in that sense, we're responsible for everything that, mm -hmm. that is mm -hmm. happening. And uh, yeah, it can hurt when we mm -hmm. recognize, oh, I just attracted something I really didn't want. You know, how, mm -hmm. how can I learn from this? It might hurt for a second, but it's so much more empowering than being a victim. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think if there's a direction to err, it might be an over-responsible. I mean, I don't know if I would go so far as to say everything that happens to you, you had coming to you. But on the other hand, I think to lean in the direction of I am acting on the world and the world is acting back on me. It's like I'm. it's showing me my face by how it responds. Yeah. It's a mirror. And so I need to think about not just be like, oh, everyone's treating me so badly, but how am I a part of this person's response to me? Sure. How have I played a role and what do I need to learn and grow up from around it? And that's actually what I meant by it. And I yeah, it. sure. You. Yeah, no, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and none of us really enjoys having someone hold up a mirror and say, look how ugly you are. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Immediately it's, oh, don't show me that. You know, if men come unto me, I will show unto them their weak. Yeah. Really? No, it's thanks. You know? um, but I, I remember there was a book I read that had been recommended to me when I was going through my divorce that what was it called a real love mm -hmm. I fought with it all the way through the book um and yeah. you know, it's all about honoring the agency of the other person basically yeah. mm -hmm. and uh and, but I mean it was telling me where I made all the mistakes in my former marriage and somehow I got I managed to, to get to page 300 or so where I surrendered to it mm -hmm. but, but I mean, yeah. I think that is a very difficult process. And sometimes it does, you know, take a sort of slap in the face. Slap yeah, the... it does. And you know what the what's so redeeming in it is not only you learn from it, but you get out of some fantasy that life is about being perfect or superior. And in some ways, if when you can just accept like I'm a human being and I matter, of course, I'm going to make mistakes. I'm not above the human condition. They don't, they are not fun. It is not fun to be humbled <laughs> by yeah. life, but it is a gift. And I remember learning that idea in church and being like, yeah, right. Who could ever really be happy about their trials or whatever, <laughs> but it, there is a gift in it because it's an opportunity to get stronger, but it's also an opportunity to accept yourself as just a human being. And while that seems like somehow diminishing, it's actually liberating and freeing that we all just get to be on the same plane in terms of our value and our, you know, that we're just human and here in a process and I don't have to be perfect and I can learn and I can grow. And the more we accept it, the freer we are. I love that. I, I love that too. And I think the thing that was going through my head when you were, when mm -hmm. you were talking about that um, is 
this sense of needing to be perfect, I think in a funny way leads to a lot of shame, especially yes. when it comes to divorce. And, and we probably have a higher level of shame within yep. our faith than outside uh, about divorce. Right. When we're, when we're facing that internally as well as externally, um, when we're facing this sense that there's so much shame surrounding it, it's really hard to own up to your part of the problem and grow from Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Right. So that's, you that's know. That's a temptation to put it on the other party. It's a hundred percent. I didn't choose it. And yeah. a lot of times in the process of divorce, the antagonism gets high enough that I can imagine they become an easier target because they maybe are unloading it all on you and you're like, oh yeah, it's all your fault. <laughs> so there's that part of the, the loss and the grief in it. It's easier to kind of project it, yeah. but absolutely the cultural shaming of it, that somehow if you were a strong person, you would have just stuck with it. And then to say, well, I didn't want the divorce. They wanted the divorce or they are the ones who caused it. You know, mm -hmm. So it's just kind of like, I wash my hands of this as opposed to, I'm owning with some dignity and grief that I'm going through something hard and that I will hold my dignity and self-respect through a process that has been painful, but I will learn from. And um, I mean, again, those are often the people that get free is in some ways to disappoint others or to betray like any idealism paradoxically often frees you up. Often it's the people that feel like they are kind of pulling off the charade of everything being perfect that are the most trapped. Mm. That makes sense. You know, we, mm -hmm. uh, Lily Pod episode 12 is about divorce stories. And we go into this, um, you know, this factor, you know, mm -hmm. where everybody tells a divorce story and is it serving you? Yeah. Oh, that's good. So a related question actually to what you've just been talking to us about it and by the way I, I'm loving what you're what you're mm. saying uh, if a mid-single doesn't address his or her own role in the sexual relationship uh, in the prior marriage mm. how likely is it that that problem is going to be repeated in the future uh, very likely or some iteration of it now you might let's say you were in a marriage before where you were in a one down position and then you go and, and I talk about this a lot in my court, my relationship course, but like that people want to create hierarchies in relationship, especially when we're more immature, when we grow in our maturation and our spiritual maturation, we get into a, we relate to ourselves and others from a same ass position, not hierarchically. So you can do your early marriage. Let's say you're in a one down where you kind of regulate around your spouse, but then it's very easy to, if you don't look and reflect on what you were doing in that, because a lot of times people think the one down person is the nicer person, but those are equally immature positions. So you can go to the next marriage and either replicate it and find another person that you revolve around, or you're like, I'm not doing that again. And now I'm going to get somebody to revolve around me. And so you still do the same unhappy hierarchy. You just do it from a different position and tell yourself it's more evolved. So if you don't self-reflect and grow from it, you are doomed to repeat it. And the divorce research uh, shows this, um, except with one important variation. So if, you know, I can't remember, if you, the first divorce, it's likely to happen, it's like somewhere between 30 and 40%. But mm -hmm. 
But then the second, the chance of getting divorced from your second marriage is more like 55%. These are like off the top of my head. Third marriage is like 70%, fourth marriage, 80%. I mean, it just gets worse as you go. And of course, the common denominator is the person themselves who keeps right. getting remarried, right? With one um, aberration, usually people don't learn from it. They just go and they repeat it again. Um, but the first to second marriage is where that's often different, that there is a group of people that learn from the first. And when they get married the second time, really do it differently. And they really do report being happier in that second marriage. It doesn't mean it's perfect or that there aren't some of those issues that might expose themselves again, but they use the, the failures of the first to really grow, see themselves more clearly, choose better, be better, and create a different second marriage. And um, so that's hopeful. That's amazing. And, you know, we actually, uh, we had brief second marriages that did not work mm -hmm. and, um, and our learning happened before and after those and, mm -hmm. and our, yeah, our third marriage is so much better. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's because we were introspective, like you said, and we yes. learned a lot from our previous relationships. Yes. And, um, our, our book, Intentional Courtship, the reason we use the word intention is because we believe intentional courtship leads to intentional marriage. And the only yes. way to meet those statistics, like you mentioned, is to be intentional. Mm -hmm. Although, yeah, I, absolutely. if I had to make a title for this interview, as how it's turned out, I would say it's self-reflection. or <laughs> Yeah, self-knowledge. And yeah. so I think self-reflection and intention together perhaps are important to do another relationship really different like you're talking well, about right. part of intention i think is i think that's right yeah so to be intentional at least it implies a kind of self-awareness and a self-defining process but yeah that self-knowledge is really critical for the intention having some foundational reality in it right so uh, i think you're right it's implied in it but that knowing your own mind and knowing your vulnerabilities is extremely important. You know, that, that, you know, a life, how's, how does that, was it Socrates or who said that like a, a life, not an unexamined life is not worth living pretty yeah. harsh. Right. Well, that's <laughs> but that's that self, that, that examined life frees you up. It subjects you to lots of insults <laughs> within right. yourself. It's, it's humbling but it frees you up to live wisely and so, and intentionally. Yeah. I mean, and that's as simple as I realize that I am about to lose it. We need to call time out in this. Absolutely. Day. It's extremely important. Like I'm losing my mind. I'm going to go on a walk or whatever is a right. very kind and protective thing to do for yourself and others. Yes. Right. Awesome. That, that, that's beautiful. If a mid single uh, person experiences anxiety shame, negative feelings during kissing or sharing other physical affection, maybe even in anticipating it. Mm. We've actually had these concerns come up in our love in later years space. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Good. Um, so how would you encourage that person to deal with those emotions? Uh, you know, if they're experiencing that in the mm -hmm. last- Well, yeah, again, I, you know, it might be going to a good, um, you know, going to a good therapist or coach or, or reading on this topic, or, you know, I have, I talk about our relationship to sexuality in, in two of my courses, the women's course and the men's course, mm. because 
sometimes just getting aware of what have I learned about sexuality, meaning I'm having shame for a reason. What's the reason? That's what I would start. I wouldn't shame myself for having the shame. I would be thinking about what's going on in the meaning for me that I feel so unsettled. Is it something about this relationship? Is it something about how I'm relating to myself in this relationship? Is it just sexuality in and of itself, no matter how much love or goodness there is here that I have an impaired relationship to sexuality? But I think people who live life well use their emotions as sort of flags that there's something there to be understood rather than just stopping doing, like just having more of a kind of impulsive response that they're using it as a way to think about what's the meaning I'm attributing to this and is it the best meaning or do I need to think about this in a new way or a better way? So, yeah. Yeah, and we're actually both certified life coaches. Uh-huh. Uh, we learned, we've learned that asking questions like that, that help, yes. uh, help the person to figure out what's causing the, yes. the, the distress. Uh-huh. Yes, exactly. And, you know, then they can go in and, and, and find peace. Yes, uh, exactly. Uh, from a standpoint of self-knowing. Exactly. And shaping the meaning, you know. Um, for example, one might think like for me to have any sexual feelings at all means I'm, you know, um, unworthy or selfish. Well, that might be an inherited meaning, but one you might challenge by saying, no, I, you know, I do a lot of this again in my courses of kind of challenging some of those inherited meanings and no, my sexuality is a gift from God. The feelings are good. They're a part of any good marriage. And can I make room for my own pleasure? as long as it's a function of self-respect and respect for the person I'm with. Can I make room for these sensual, for sensuality? Even if I learned or grew up in a family where anything sensual meant you were, you know, um, playing with fire. And so you can challenge those meanings in a deliberate way and really expand your experience of yourself and your sexuality. That's awesome. And we love challenging thoughts and uh, meanings. And we do it yeah. ourselves in our own personal work. And yeah, um, we actually came up with something called our FCBO model, mm. um, where we separate out facts from stories to, mm. to contribute to better emotion and energy, mm-hmm. uh, and ultimately behaviors and outcomes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so right. We love that work for ourselves yeah. and for, you know, the people that we work with. Yeah. And incidentally, if there, if there are people that are having issues with the anxiety, shame, negative feelings and stuff about sexuality or physical affection during courtship, we do highly recommend Jennifer's courses as well as her mm. podcast and other material. Because I, I know it made a, a big difference in how I think about this whole subject. Yeah, we mm-hmm. enjoy all your stuff. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So we, we have kind of one final question and you've, you've sort of answered this throughout, but we still want to throw it out mm-hmm. there and sure. give you a chance to uh, um, respond to it. What can a mid-single Latter-day Saint do to mature in his or her sexuality while simultaneously committed to celibacy? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, there's, there's certain growth you can do and certain growth you can't do. So the growth you can do is, 
you know, for example, going back to my dissertation research, the women who really thrived were in a peaceful enough relationship with their sexuality while not being sexual. So there were some women who felt ashamed of their sexuality, meaning one of my dissertation questions was, when was the when was your first awareness of sexual or sensual pleasure? So almost invariably, invariably people had had experiences before they had actually ever gone on a date. That is, they sat on the head of a doll, felt some response, something like that. The women who did well had a positive response to that. They were like, oh, this is cool. This is exciting. This is uh, a good part of me. Even if they made very conservative decisions or decided like, I'm not going to engage this part of myself for now because I choose not to versus women who had their first experiences and felt shame. You know, like one person was like, oh, this is bad. I'm dirty. Okay. So that that's a part of it is just being able to be at peace with the fact of your sexual nature, of your sensuality, of your capacity for pleasure. That's very, very important work is to just integrate your embodiment, to be in a moderate relationship with the pleasures of life. I think it's anti-spiritual to be in a shaming position around pleasures or an indulgent position because both of them are in the extremes rather than integrating the fact of your sexuality or of your capacity for pleasure, even with food, right? In a way that is in line with the person that you want to be. That's, that's spiritual work. That's wonderful. And uh, I relate with everything you just said. And yeah, and I actually, I, I personally, uh, especially appreciate capacity for pleasure, because I think Mm. that is almost something we can be proud of, like something that we can feel good about because we absolutely do enjoy this life. Yeah. It takes courage to let yourself be given to it takes courage not in an indulgent way, but to be able to receive the beauty that's in the world, pleasure from a spouse, you know, the, enjoy the food you're eating and really enjoy it. You know, some people like guiltily will eat quickly rather than let the pleasure bless my life and make my life richer to really take it in. That's, that's an act of self-respect. It's an act of allowing yourself joy. And a lot of times we have this idea that, oh, the really spiritual people are joyless and dutiful and long suffering, where I think really it's more in this moderation that you uh, care about your happiness, that you have the courage to be happy and take in the good, but not live indulgently, not live in a self-destructive or other destructive path because repression or indulgence will lead you both to hell, right? We just, we take repression as some kind of hell on earth, but (laughs) I'm saying it too extremely, but we sort of value that as somehow good, but those are often people that don't know happiness and they know more depression and self-rejection. We actually do go into those two extremes in our book because they are Mm -hmm. healthy. And um, so I think what you're saying in relation to the question is just that if you choose celibacy to make sure that you're also seeing your own sexuality as a good thing. Yes. Absolutely. That it's not fear-based, but courage-based choice. And then when you're in a partnership, you can develop your capacity for intimacy with sexuality in that context of marriage. But with yourself, there needs to be a certain intimacy with yourself. Like I accept myself. I accept my sexual nature and don't shame it. 
even if I'm not in a context where I can express it and develop it with another person yet. So how, how you see yourself as sort of the, the, the foundation. hundred percent. And then how you show up with your partner is, is built on that. That's right. That's right. And, and I, I, I love that, uh, that idea and it, that it begins with, with our own acceptance of our own mm -hmm. sexual nature, whether we are in a sexual partnership or, or not. Yes. You know, we, we so appreciate you taking the time to meet with us today. We've been looking sure. forward to it for months. And yeah, very honored. Yes, very yeah. honored. And, um, you know, we actually address this quite a bit in our book because it is a big issue for mid-singles um, who, are, who are courting and dating again. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Laura Brotherson actually wrote the foreword for our book. Ah, oh, fine, that's great. And she really liked that we we included a lot of that, and plus like the the law of attraction and um, mm -hmm. and things like that that um, that will be so helpful like, for mid singles. And we're mm -hmm. excited to bring that out soon. Um, right, and Jennifer. Yeah. How can people find you? Uh, on my website, which is finlaysonfife.com, so my last name with a hyphen between Finlayson and Fife, and on my website, you can find a podcast that I have done on sexuality, spirituality, integrity, uh, relationships, just every topic, maybe almost every topic, <laughs> um, and then my online courses are there, so I have a couples relationship course and a couples sexuality course but then also a men's course called the art of loving. It's really a self and sexual development course. Like how do I belong to sexuality and my integrity and my strength. And then a parallel art of desire, a women's course with the same focus, um, you know, how women develop themselves and their sexual selves, and then how to talk to your kids about sex course. So I actually have a mom in my violin studio who has ah. art of desire course and love. Oh, oh, great. Yeah. That's awesome. So yeah. fun. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you so much. And we really appreciate you being part of Love in Later Years as well. I mean, your voice is so great here on our thank podcast you. and in our group. I mean, we just love your comments and uh, thank you and everything. Yeah. yeah. Very, very. Uh, I'm glad that I stumbled across your work at an important time in my life. And, and I think uh, it helps Kathy and I all the time. So great. Uh, we appreciate it. Uh, we've said to our audience, check out Jennifer's uh, material. We think it's great. Uh, we are big consumers of it. And remember, anytime is a great time for more love in your life. We'll talk to you next time. Subscribe to LilyPod to get notice of each new weekly episode. If you enjoy what you heard, share with those you love. For more information about our organization and services, visit loveinlateryears.com.